Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Thursday, July 31st here in New York City. Recording this intro right after the conclusion of tonight's Lakers Clippers game where the Lakers came away with a 103-101 game and a great, great game. I hope everyone's doing well, staying safe as uh, the battle against the coronavirus continues. Coming up today on the podcast is a really interesting interview I did with the new Packer High School here in Brooklyn, new boys head basketball coach Trevor Cap. Coach Cap, uh, really interesting guy, coached my brother in high school, was an AAU coach under uh, Dave Brown with the BSNY program. Uh, I've known him for a while, really good guy, and also just has has taken a really interesting path in his coaching journey. He's gone uh, coaching in the private schools in New York, AAU's gone overseas and learned a lot of coaching. He's getting ready for his first full-time season this fall. Hopefully there'll be a season, so really looking forward to uh, seeing what he does in charge of his own program now and just had a really great talk with him. I think everyone will find it really interesting. So that's coming up today on the podcast. But before we get to the interview with Trevor on Recommendation Corner this week, as I did uh, on Tuesday's podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit about Seven Seconds or Less, the book that I'm reading. I have two main thoughts from the next set of chapters that I read, which is uh, the first one was just the challenges of coaching just in the NBA for Mike D'Antoni, just in terms of the age of the players. Because a lot of times, you know, as when I was in, I think, and I relate more to the high school and college situations of, you know, high school, college kids, you have so much energy. And yes, guys get hurt, but it's, but it's not like you have to worry about resting a lot. Or if you take a guy out, are they going to get stiff or something like that. Well, D'Antoni describes in the book when they were going up against the Lakers in the playoff series in 2006, Steve Nash, back-to-back MVP, playing great, so important to their team. But D'Antoni's like, well, if I keep him in the game, he's going to get exhausted and he won't be as good. But if I take him out, Steve Nash had a chronic back injury. His back would stiffen up and it would take him sometimes too long. He'd get tight. It'd take him too long, or maybe he couldn't go back in at exactly that same time. Got to get loose again. There's all these challenges. I think of people don't realizing. Hey, it's different coaching. Even though these guys are elite, the best athletes in the world, there are challenges of coaching. Sometimes 28 to 34 year olds versus an 18 to 25 year old, just in terms of how their body reacts to certain things, what they need to do to to stay ready, and, and just what goes into just getting loose to play, how many minutes and how intense uh, NBA playoff basketball is. So I found that really interesting. And the other part was at the beginning of the year, what made that year so amazing when you think about it is that one of their best players, Amari. Uh, Amari Stoudemire missed pretty much the whole season with uh, a couple knee injuries. And it was just interesting to see how the Suns, and especially Coach D'Antoni, adjusted to the reality of not having Amari and not having one of their best players. He averaged about 25 points the year before, and he was going to be a huge part of their team. And a lot of times in the talking head space and just a lot of, I guess, just not just young coaches, but just uh, people would, in general, like I would definitely have freaked out about oh my god we don't have Amari what does this mean we're going to stink or maybe we're not we won't be as good our chance at a championship is gone coach D'Antoni kind of just like he didn't really panic he said you know it'll be tough but I think we'll be fine but 
they just he just said, hey, we're just going to have to outscore teams, and we're just going to still have to try to get to a certain number and try to just outscore teams because it's going to be tougher to completely change our style now and try to guard without Amari, who was a good rim protector. And it was just, hey, the, you know, this is just kind of what we have to do, and I think we'll be fine. And just it shows just the power of having kind of that optimistic outlook on even if you have a bad injury to one of your best players, if you take the right approach to it and really focus on, okay, even if we don't have Amari now, what can the guys on the team do and how can we maximize their their skills to best help us win basketball games or just any game? Uh, I think that shows a lot to just the type of coach you are and just uh, – those are usually teams that are really successful, the guys who focus on what their teams can do versus what they can't do. So those are the two things that I've really uh, enjoyed or picked out from the from those chapters I've read so far, really enjoying the book. And the last thing I want to touch on is tonight was uh, the return of the NBA's restart. It was the first night. There was the Jazz Pelicans and then the Lakers Clippers. First off, the first thing uh, was before the both games during the national anthem, all the players, all the coaches, all the referees, all kneeled around the court in unison. So if if, if anyone didn't see it, it's almost like so with the so the camera from where you're watching the game, you look out on on the court. It has the Black Lives Matter in on the sideline, farthest away from the camera. And the players, coaches, and referees all kneeled and held arms in unison around that so that you still had the image on the screen of Black Lives Matter while everyone kneeling throughout the national anthem. It was a really powerful image. I give a lot of props to the players, the Players Association, the league, the coaches for coming together to have a complete unifying stance on this is what we're doing together. And I thought it was really powerful and give a lot of props to them for... uh, Again, you know, a lot of people talk about things, but then now it's it's actually doing stuff, and it's and it's another uh, sign of a of a public uh, stance against these really important issues about police brutality and racial uh, injustice in the United States. So I found that really really powerful to start the game, and then on the basketball side of things, the Jazz Pelicans and the Lakers Clippers came out just like anyone would expect them to come out after three months of no games which was it was rusty it was sloppy at times there's a lot of turnovers but the guys competed hard and it didn't really look like guys were you know too out of shape it just mainly looked like hey we just haven't played full speed super competitive basketball in a while just a lot of the turnovers i think will get fixed up in the next few weeks it's just they get playing more it's kind of like you know an early season college basketball practice or early season college basketball game where you know there's just a lot of turnovers but you're just getting the rust out building back up just uh not like your physical physical conditioning, but just you know the the mental side and and the and the turnover uh, conditioning. So, but besides that, the Jazz Pelicans. The first part about it was just in terms of that game, the Pelicans. We need more Zion. He was on a minutes restriction as he was just returning, returning to the bubble. But selfishly, I want to see more Zion because he's incredible. And also, the NBA brought back twenty two teams and a huge part for Zion and to try to help the Pelicans uh, really if they're going to get a chance to make the playoffs and earn their chance for the playoffs, this is their chance. So they brought back 22 teams. A huge part of it was Zion. And part of it too is he's so good and he's so important for the team. I understand he was on a minute restriction, but in the last two minutes or last minute and a half, when it's a super close game, you got to put him back in because 
you are in a playoff push for your playoff hopes and your and your season's hopes to to try to get in and you can't lose this game. You you just can't lose the Jazz one by two and like not having Zion on the floor was a huge uh, part of that I think and overall there's a lot of really good defense they played too uh, by Lonzo Ball and Drew Holiday on the perimeter on guys like Donovan Mitchell so that was really really impressive so I I like this New Orleans team but we need to see more Zion on the other side with Utah one of the most interesting stats I saw was that Joe Ingles has played in 397 I think straight NBA games he has not he's played 397 straight NBA games he's their Iron Man uh that's an incredible streak I knew it was a lot but I didn't know it was that much that's an interesting streak to just keep your eye on the other part is I think everyone's talking about this is Donovan Mitchell just needs some more help on the perimeter creating he's not a point guard by trade he's a scoring guard he's learning that position so he just needs a little more help on the perimeter and if if someone's able to step up and do some and help him with the playmaking. The the Utah could be the Utah Jazz could be an interesting team to watch going forward into the playoffs. The other game, Lakers Clippers, game of the night. The Lakers come away with a 103-101 victory. On the Lakers side, the most impressive part was just how locked in LeBron was on the defensive side of the floor. It was really interesting because he gets a bad rap now of coasting through the regular season defensively. His defensive stats sometimes aren't the best, but hey, you know, the guy recognizes that we basically only value what he does in the postseason and he can't play super hard defense every single possession 35 minutes a night 82 games a season plus the 20 plus he's gonna have to play in the playoffs he knows how to pace his body and and get through the season and his defense tonight on Kawhi Leonard and Paul George it was awesome it was great to see those superstars go head to head and that was great and it'll be interesting to see if it goes forward if he does that against let's say a weaker team that they had to face and who's not, who doesn't have a superstar. And the other part was that was huge for them just going forward is Kyle Kuzma played with a lot of confidence and he shot the ball with a lot of confidence. He played 32 minutes tonight, hit four threes, grabbed seven rebounds, um, made four free throws. Just a huge performance from him. And if, and if he plays with confidence, he was also really good team positioning-wise on defense. If he plays with a lot of confidence and shoots the ball with the way that he did tonight, that's a huge, huge, huge uh plus for the Lakers going forward because they're down Avery Bradley uh, and they just need guys who can step up and hit shots on the perimeter. For the Clippers, the Clippers' depth is impressive because they lose this game by two and Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell are still in quarantine. They uh, were not able to play. Pat Beverly was on a minute restriction due to coming back from uh, a family emergency that he had to deal with, so he's returned to the bubble, and they uh, they're down a couple of their best players, and it was like still like there's a two point game. They're in it the whole way. Their depth is going to be a problem as we head towards the playoffs, and I'm really interested to see what they are at full strength. But you know they haven't really been at full strength the whole season, so it will be really interesting to see what they look like when they have everyone together, and if that takes a reacclimation or or an adjustment period to just you know, what it's like for them at full strength. So those are my some just quick early thoughts on the first two NBA games. I'm pumped that the NBA is back. I think we're all excited to have it back. And it'll be great to watch 
kind of this, this first weekend because it's the way they scheduled it. It's kind of like the early NCAA tournament where it's games all afternoon going into about 9 o'clock at night. It's the last tip-off time. And just be fun having a lot of basketball on and just uh, just stuff to watch on, on the weekend now. So without further ado, I'm going to hit the music. And when we come back is my interview with the new boys basketball coach at the Packers School, uh, Trevor Cap. Joining me today on the podcast is special guest, the new head boys basketball coach at the Packer School here in Brooklyn, New York, Trevor Cap. He won the 2006 Nice State title with Friends Seminary while in high school, and he majored in journalism while in college, graduating from the University of North Carolina in 2011, before moving back to New York City, where he has worked for various media outlets as a journalist, including New York Daily News. When not out breaking news... Trevor worked as an assistant basketball coach at his alma mater under head coach Dave Lieber, and he just returned from Spain where he was enrolled in a graduate program at the Universidad Europa in Madrid where he wrote a thesis on the on the EuroLeague. This past spring, Coach Cap was named the new head coach at the Packer School in the ACIS. I'm pumped he's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? David, I'm doing great. I appreciate you having me on. Of course. So kind of let's just go right back to, to the beginning where did you grow up and kind of how did you first start playing basketball? Sure. So I grew up uh, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and really uh, just grew up playing in in parks around the city. Uh, started playing at uh, Tompkins Square Park on uh, 10th Street and Avenue A. Um, and really just from there, uh, went to put in some different summer camps and was playing with friends and went on to... Uh, yeah, playing middle school and at high school at Friends Seminary. So I guess this this is one thing that I think you could speak on this shared experience is that growing up in New York City or, or in a big city is different than when you grow up in, in the suburbs of just how you just like how many opportunities you have to play because it's because it's not like most people just have a hoop in their in their driveway. So so kind of can can you talk about just the daily schedule of middle school or high school when when it was a t- when when you wanted to go play basketball? Sure. So, uh, I mean, the great thing about New York City is just, uh, I mean, how many parks there are and how many hoops there are inside these parks. So, uh, you know, growing up, I was really, I was out there, I'd say probably six days a week, just, just playing, uh, playing and pick up in, in, in different parks and was always playing against guys who were, who were older than me. Um, and, you know, I think, I think it toughened me up a little bit as a player, you know, having a, two or three game wait on a 90 degree day in July, uh, <laughs> builds a little, uh, builds a little toughness. Um, so I was, you know, thankful for that. Um, and then, yeah, just moving on to, uh, to playing in, uh, in gyms across the city, you know, gyms, uh, gyms in New York, so court size isn't always regulation. Right. Um, definitely some low ceilings, sometimes <laughs> some poor, definitely, uh, sometimes some poor lighting. But, yep. uh, you know, got a bunch of different experiences playing, playing as a kid, and, and I think it, uh, it served me well for high school. Yeah, so in high school, you went to the Friends Seminary School, which is just an awesome uh, private school in lower Manhattan. Can, can you kind of talk about just how you would try to balance academics, basketball, and just the normal high school social life things when you are in uh, ninth and 10th grade? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Uh, my teachers might have argued I didn't 
balance it all that well. Uh, I, you know, obviously being in a New York City private school, there's it's pretty uh, rigorous uh, academic course load. So, you know, would have several hours of homework a night. Um, was playing a lot of basketball. Uh, probably didn't sleep as much as as I should have in high school. Um, you know, it was again three or four hours each night of, of schoolwork, uh, and I was probably playing basketball. When it was the fall, spring, I'd be be out in the parks or, or in the friends gym and open gym playing against guys. Um, but but it was you know I look back on on that high school period really fondly and, and a lot of great memories. But it was definitely one of the more chaotic uh, periods work wise and just sort of kind of figuring out who you are and, and right. trying to balance your love of the sport. Right for sure. So so you played for Dave Lieber in high school and the two thousand five two thousand six team was awesome. Can can you kind of talk about just the those early season practices with with that group and and kind of just maybe thinking like hey this group can do something special yeah absolutely so i would say it actually that was my junior year mm-hmm. 05 06 i would say it even started the year uh before 04 05 we had a really really talented team we had uh stanley grayson who was probably six five six six really talented player ended up actually going to uh to wesleyan oh, wow. um and then and then my year we also had troy whittington mm-hmm. who was another six five sort of really just athletic forward and you don't see athletes like him much in the private schools ended up becoming a uh first team all-American at uh, D3 All-American at Williams. Yeah. So we had a really talented team. We were the one seed in the, in the Class C tournament that year. Um, I think I think we, our team, we kind of just battled some, some injuries down the stretch, and we lost in the semifinal my sophomore year. We got upset by Hackley, who's the number four seed. Um, so... After that year, you know, Stanley graduated. We lost another uh, talented starter from that team. But we really just came back even hungrier from my junior year. Um, turned into really magical year. I think we were all on a mission and kind of knew what we, uh, what we had to do that year and what our, what our goals were. Um, you know, so we, we got after it early in the year and uh, ended up, uh, we ended up, I think we were the two seed that year, my junior year in the, in the state tournament. And I think... Long Island Lutheran was the one seed, and that oh, was wow. before. That was the year before Coach I, I, Coach Buck wasn't there yet. Okay. Um, and I think they might have gotten upset in the first round by Staten Island Academy, who was the number eight seed. <laughs> wow! So semifinal game we beat Riverdale. I remember, and that game went into overtime. Um, and I think we we might have come back from down double digits in that game. Um, you know, made it to uh, made it to uh, that that state final, and and we ended up beating Staten Island Academy, who we'd already beaten. I want to say two or three times that uh, that season. Um, so my junior year, you came out on came out on top. Yeah. So there was a famous clip of after Luke May hit a shot to go to the Final Four at Carolina a few years ago, that yep. he came back to his eight a.m. class and he got a standing ovation after you guys won the title in in you know your. All, in, in all your AP classes, did did the teachers or the, your classmates, you know, give you guys a huge standing ovation? Yeah, I wish I could say I had a Luke May story after the <laughs> Kentucky game. I think maybe one of the 
one of the security guards or something may have shaken my hand <laughs> kind of the extent of it. Um, but you know, that was just a, an incredible memory that, that my teammates and I, we still, we still talk about and it's still a, still a bond we have and that, and that state banner was certainly hanging in the friends gym, uh, proudly for a long time. So, can, can you talk a little bit about just your college search process? Were you playing AAU? Were, were you doing kind of the re, the recruiting uh, circuit? And, and kind of how did you, you know, approach the whole college process with the, with the basketball part and just the school part of it? Because as we were kind of talking about, Friends Seminary is one of the best high schools in New York City, and so many kids go on to just great, great schools. Sure, yeah. So I uh, I did not play AAU actually. Uh, I played three years of varsity at Friends. Uh, and again, we won 20 games all three of those years, but it certainly wasn't because of me. I wasn't <laughs> that great a player. Um, but, you know, I loved basketball and I think I was even predicted in the yearbook my senior year to be the next coach, David Lieber. <laughs> he's still going. He's been there 31 years now and just made the New York State Hall of Fame this year. So, it's a huge accomplishment. Um, and just looking around, uh, I give uh, I give Marquette a lot of credit. Uh, you know, I, when I went to a college fair my junior year at Friends, really didn't know where I was going to go. And there were a bunch of schools there. Um, but, but Marquette did something that I thought was really intelligent. They put together a really, really impressive booklet that had all their majors laid out and what their graduates within these programs were doing with their degree. And uh, the journalism program really caught my eye, and it was something I was kind of always interested in, mm-hmm. um, and it had a good reputation. So I toured Marquette in September of 2006, and I still remember the day. It was a Friday. It was like it's like the nicest day of the year. <laughs> you know, you're, in, you're in Milwaukee, and this was like – it was just straight out of like a promotional video. It was so nice there. The weather was, yeah, incredible. Um you know, and uh, I really, I really liked it. Uh, looked at a couple other schools, but but I ultimately uh, got into Marquette and decided that was where I was going to go to study journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, not. Uh, I think anybody who spent any time in Milwaukee will tell you uh, year round is uh, a little different than than just being there one day in September. For sure. So, so you spend two years at uh, Marquette doing journalism and then you end up transferring to North Carolina to continue your your journalism degree where you actually had a pretty cool opportunity you know North Carolina has such a great and historic and storied basketball program you were able to to start covering some high school and some AAU top prospects while you were at North Carolina right yeah I did uh it was really uh, an incredible opportunity I got to work for uh for UNC rivals and for Duke rivals at the time. And I was also working for uh, New York based magazine, dime magazine. Um, So I was covering, uh, I was covering recruiting. I was going to uh, Williams tournament in the spring. I was interviewing uh, some prospects, Uh, you know, got to do a couple diaries with, with college players Mm -hmm. uh, right before the, or during the NCAA tournament. So Really, really good experience there. Um, got to go to Roy Williams's weekly Friday press conferences. So, yeah, really uh, some incredible opportunities that, that I'm really thankful for. 
So who were some of the, the top players who you got to interview or just watch in, in those Boo Williams tournaments? Because around that time, that's like 2010, 2011, is, is, is that like yep. Harrison Barnes' year and, yep. and, and exactly. Kyrie Irving? Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, uh, it was around, it was the Harrison Barnes time. Uh, Austin Rivers also was number one prospect in the country around that time. We got to interview him at Brew Williams, but interviewed Kyrie Irving a few times. Um, Mike Cabongo, who was, yeah. was a five-star recruit, played at Texas. Uh, I think he's overseas now. Um, Archie Goodwin, who played a little bit of, played a little bit with the uh, the Phoenix Suns and went to Kentucky. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember seeing uh, Michael Kidd, Gilchrist there, Trevor Cooney, and uh, Raheem Christmas, who both played at Syracuse. Um, so. It was really, uh, really, really enjoyed what I was doing while I was there, um, and a lot of great memories doing that. What is what is Coach Roy Williams? Just you know, I've never watched or heard him listen in his Friday press conferences, but just what does he talk about in in his Friday press conference? Well, it's a lot of daggums, I'll tell you. That. <laughs> um, you know, the Friday press conferences. It was really just the you know, there's an ACC game typically on. Saturdays, so uh, it was a lot of just previews of the matchup, you know, mm-hmm. developments through the week. If there were any injury concerns, any just any uh, any issues that might be arising within the program, so it was just you know probably fifteen minutes on, on Fridays. He would always do a press conference, but got to got to uh, cover those, ask him questions, and yeah, really uh, really you know invaluable experience for me that I'll always uh, always cherish. So while you're doing this and you're covering, you know, elite high school AU basketball, you're covering Coach Williams. Uh, were you also working for the, you know, the the student newspaper at North Carolina as well? Yeah, I think I worked at the Daily Tar Heel my junior year, and I wasn't covering sports. I was just doing uh, feature writing, um, and then you know that. Uh, my senior year was really when I when I picked it up covering uh, covering you know recruiting and getting on with with UNC and Duke rivals. Gotcha. So so kind of coach, you know, you're graduating college. I I just went through this as as I just recently graduated in the last couple of months. It's like junior senior year. You personally start like, oh my god, I'm graduating. What, what am I going to do? And also, just everyone you've ever met starts asking you what you're going to do now. You Absolutely. majoring in journalism, you're, as you said, for the newspaper, you're writing these these feature pieces, but you're doing a lot of sports coverage where at that time, did was was sports writing something that you were really thinking about going into or, or maybe even trying to go into coaching? Yeah, I, I'll be honest. I wasn't really even thinking about coaching at that point. I, I really enjoyed sports journalism. I remember when I was covering games, though, I was getting home at night, you know, sometimes late at night. And you're just like, I didn't really want to keep I didn't really want to put sports on TV. It was a little bit like it was mixing, you know, work with pleasure a little too much for me. And I kind of just thought, you know, maybe maybe uh, maybe I want to try some other type of reporting. So. I actually interned with the New York Daily News newspaper here before my senior year of college, and that was really good experience. And I, I, I was just working on the on the city desk for them. So I, uh, you know, once once I, I stayed in good in uh, in contact with those guys. So once uh, once I graduated, I, I returned to work there 
freelancing for them. Awesome. So, so kind of just for for anyone who who doesn't know, when when you're a freelance reporter for the Daily News or just for other outlets, kind of how does it work? Do they assign you stories? Do you have to pitch stories? Do you just go cover breaking news? Kind of just like how does it work? Yeah, it's a little bit of both actually. Um, so I had set days. I was working for them. I think I was working. It was Sunday through Thursday, I believe. Um, that was in the beginning. And, you know, it was, uh, in many ways, it was, it was great. It was really, really good experience. There were so many parts of the city that, you know, grew up here, but just didn't, hadn't been to a lot of neighborhoods in the city. So that was really, uh, that was really just a great opportunity for me. And, you know, it was also really convenient because I was really getting done by three or 4 PM each day. So that, that freed me up that fall to uh to be available to to go help out at friends yeah. and uh again I, when i was in college i wasn't really thinking about coaching um but one of my uh, one of our high school assistants brandon primack he was always in my ear saying when you get out of college you have to give this a shot for one or two years and and i did it and uh you know i'm thankful i did yeah so so kind of t- can you just talk about just the hours you were working just because a lot of times the freelance reporting for, for the stuff you were doing, it either can start really early in the morning, you can be working in the middle of the night and then practicing and games, you know, can go, you know, to six, seven, eight o'clock with the, with the infamous traffic and commuting in, in New York city. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I was starting oftentimes at, uh, when I was working for, for the daily news, I was starting probably like seven or eight, in the morning and yeah it was uh those days were busy covering multiple stories just sort of whatever the day happened to bring uh but again i and i heard uh coach buck say this on on your podcast just kind of looking at the clock hoping it gets to be three o'clock and then go racing off to racing off to school to make it to practice um you know whether it was a 3 30 or a five o'clock practice so Mm -hmm. they were uh they were really busy days for sure uh, but I kind of, kind of really, uh, coaching that first year was, it was an eye opener for me in a lot of ways and, and I enjoyed it way more than I anticipated I would. So, so what was it? Cause, cause people, coaches always talk about how much they enjoy from it. And I always find it interesting because enjoyment and joy can, can, are these big words, but they can, but they can mean different things, you know, and have different things that, that contribute to it. So just what was it about? Uh, being the an assistant coach at Friends and back coaching, like what was it? That, like what about it was so enjoyable for for you? Yeah, I think uh, it's you know just putting the puzzle together. It's a major challenge. I don't. We weren't the most talented. It was a little bit of a, a contrast from when I was in high school, where we had a lot of talent. Now suddenly, like Friends didn't have unbelie- an unbelievable team, mm-hmm. and I think just working with guys seeing guy, you know, spend a little time with the guy working on a dribbling move or working on his shot fake and then seeing him apply that in a game. Um, and just also the challenge of scouting different teams, figuring out what you can or what you can't do. And there's, you know, when you're just starting out, there's a lot of, a lot of trial and error. Um, but I I found it really, really fulfilling the, those, uh, those first couple of years. And again, I I wasn't anticipating I was going to, do this beyond you know maybe two or three years uh-huh. but uh i'd say it was really just by by year three or you know year four maybe i was just i just kind of became addicted to it and really started 
studying X's and O's and drills and went to my first coaching clinic. And, and that was, uh, you know, haven't looked back much. Yeah. So, so that kind of brings me to my next question. Cause you know, if, if you think about it, you're, you're in school, like if you want to learn about the revolutionary war, you go to a bookstore or you Google it and it's like, you get those, you know, you just start reading about it, right? There's all this knowledge about it. But like when, what, when you decide to really start first studying the X's and O's of basketball and really, you know, start to learn more about the coaching side of things, just like, where was the first place you went? Like, like how do you even go about trying to find that information? Yeah, I think it was YouTube actually. Okay. Uh, I think I was just, I think I was just looking up like old, I don't know, one four UCLA offenses, looking up old John Wooden stuff, and I think that's really where it began. And it's like it, it, you open one door and, and leads to something else. So uh, you know, then I it started to be oh, I think I've heard the flex offense mentioned a bunch. Let me make sure I have this this down. And do I know what a UCLA cut is? A shuffle cut, and it all just one thing leads to to another really but mm-hmm. uh you know once you once you uh once you start it's pretty easy to to get addicted to it and that's kind of what happened with me so after you know you're on youtube and i'm sure you as you start learning about different things like you start picking up things hey i like this oh i, I don't really like that who are some coaches who you start following or maybe started watching a little more of their stuff compared to compared to others yeah i would say i think a lot of high school and probably D3 and even D1, D2 coaches can relate to this. John Beeline is really mm-hmm. big. I think uh, Coach Beeline just runs unbelievable, unbelievable two-guard stuff. Um, you know, studying some of the some of the Princeton stuff, I mean, you know, from uh, I, I think uh, Coach Buzz Williams is as good as, as good as it gets when it for coaches on uh, on social media, just posting yeah. everything with his team, and it's not necessarily X's and O's, but just sort of these those all access videos of his program, um, and it's really just in, incredible for uh, for young coaches to to see what he's doing there, um, you know. And then uh, 2015, I went to my first coaching clinic ever, and that was just uh, what an unbelievable slate of coaches. Uh, who were at that and and got a lot of great drills from that some really good uh x's and o's so just came back and uh and applied some of that stuff and just you know just continuing to try to grow yeah so so i've never been to a coach's cl- clinic before but but are, but like how are they advertised where where was this one and and kind of you know named up a you're allowed to name drop here who are some of the coaches who who were there and, and giving you all these tidbits of of great info. Yeah. So if you haven't been to a coach's clinic, it's basically a lot of, uh, a lot of legal pads, notepads and khaki shorts. And <laughs> you see a lot of pens at these coaches clinics. But so that one was actually, it was a two day event in 2015 and it was out in Los Angeles. actually. Okay. So I went out there for two days. Uh, coach George Raveling was, was, uh, hosting the clinic and just, I mean, the speakers who were there was Buzz Williams was there. Um, Cynthia Cooper, who was the USC women's coach at the time. Ernie Kent, who was the coach of Washington State. Uh, John Calipari was there. Yep. 
uh, Dana Altman from Oregon, um, Quanzo Martin, who was at Cal at the time and is at Missouri now. Mm -hmm. Um, Kevin Eastman was there. He was a longtime Celtics assistant, uh, with the Clippers. So just an unbelievable two days for me that was, uh, something I don't think I'll ever forget. For sure. And, and, and kind of what, what I hear coaches tell other people or, or just really for, for any career to, to really, you know, become good at something, you, you got to do it, right? So if you want to coach, you got to find a team to coach. So obviously you're working as an, as an assistant at Friends Seminary, but kind of did you try to get involved with the AAU game to, to try to start coaching year round? And, and, and kind of how did you just start implementing or trying to implement some of these things that you were learning into the teams that you were working with? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so at Friends, Coach Lieber gave me a lot of freedom just mm-hmm. to to see. Uh, I saw sets I liked or drills I liked. You know, would show it to him beforehand, and if he was good with it, he would allow me to put it in. So, really thankful that that he allowed me to do that. And I also started in 2016 coaching with Basketball Stars of New York, Coach yep. Dave Brown's program. I think you had him on a couple weeks ago, too. Sure. So uh, was, was that first year, I was an assistant coach for his 15U AAU team. He was the head coach. And then after that, I, uh, I got to take that, uh, that team over and coach those guys, 16U, 17U, and, and coach one more year after that as well. Yeah, so... AAU gets a bad rap a lot of times, right? Right, coach, where it's, you know, just like, you know, eight games in a day, teams don't stick together. The basketball sometimes isn't all that great. Kind of just as you're approaching AAU season, you know, you you have your roster. How how would you approach an an AAU practice? Because a lot of times you don't have a lot of practice time to – get these guys used to playing together and, and developing a type of on-court chemistry really before the first tournament starts? Yeah, David, I appreciate the question. So I have several different thoughts on on AAU. And uh-huh. I, I used to be one of those people who kind of scoffed at it and thought it was terrible basketball and total, total, totally uh, disorganized. And there's definitely some truth to that. But, you know, I think AAU has, has a bunch of strengths as well. And you know, it gets players out of their comfort zones. I mean, you know, being a, a New York City private school guy yourself, yeah. some of the some of the private school gyms are unbelievable. But you know, you go and play in AAU, and and some are some are uh, pretty bad. And it, it's uh, can be cold in them. Lighting can be bad. You get three minutes for for warm ups. Yeah, uh, there's no scouting report. It's uh, no, yeah. can be the refs' fourth game of the day, and they're not going to do a great job. And I think that's that's really good for players, just getting out of their comfort zones. Maybe playing two or three games a day against different competition teams, change defenses, have to adjust on the fly. Um, and you know, I'll just say from a personal standpoint, it was a really good experience for me i've always tried to be pretty meticulous in my game prep but with aau you're you know again as you said you're only practicing once or twice a week sometimes yeah. you only have six or seven guys at practice and and it's just a major challenge so you know i really credit aau for getting me to realize um you know there were there's some things you're just not able to control as a coach um I had to make more in-game adjustments 
during tournaments, yeah. reminding guys to bring basketballs for warm-up just <laughs> helps with your organization. So, so I think, again, a lot of the AAU criticisms are merited, but I always, uh, I always try and look at the positives of it as well. And also, if, if you're a believer in the, the whole 10,000 hours rules, or basically just you need a lot of hours of repetition to, ex- to excel and to master something, AAU, just in terms of in-game coaching, is, is one of the fastest ways to get up to speed because there's so many games. You can do it so many weekends in the, in the spring and, and summertime. It's such a great way to, to kind of catch up because high school is so regimented in, in the number of games. It's a lot, you know, in, in high school, you could do a lot more practice coaching. But with AAU, you, you can really work on the on the in-game coaching aspect of it. 100%. And, you know, sometimes you'll get a kid for the weekend who wasn't normally playing with our team, but his other team didn't have a game, and he shows up with for on your team for the weekend. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he doesn't know your offense or anything. There's no real rhythm with your your players so you know you maybe take a time out and draw something up and what you draw up turns into a set for the game and yeah it's uh it's really really it really uh makes you speed everything up and really uh really challenges you in a number of different ways uh to to bring your your team together for for that weekend so you were coaching at france you're coaching au then you then you kind of did something radical uh coach you decide, you know what, New York City, I'm going to say temporary goodbye. I'm going to go do a graduate school program in Madrid, in Spain. Can, can you kind of just, just, just talk about what went into that decision? And just for anyone who's applying to school, it's hard enough to figure it all out of the American options. How did you even begin the process of learning about schools in a different country? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Um, so answer is a little complicated and I'll try and give you the, the condensed version. Um, but I've been, I've been at friends for seven seasons, uh, and I'd had the same full-time reporting job, uh, for six of those seasons, just about. So that news organization I was with called DNA info, uh, shut down at the end of 2000. 17. Okay. So 2018, right after the season, I actually went over to Spain for a week and mm-hmm. I'd never even been to Europe and was just, it was pretty curious. And, uh, you know, before going there, I actually, I looked up all the FC Barcelona and the Real Madrid Academy teams and was just trying to find those coaches on social media, write them uh, a message and hope to meet up with them if, if, uh, they were around and, and in doing that research, I actually found out that Real Madrid had its own school. Uh, and that's a little more common in Europe where, mm-hmm. where, uh, clubs actually have their own, their own, uh, schools, their own universities. So I checked it out and I did a bunch of research on it and I just decided I was going to apply to, to the sports marketing program for, for the following year being, uh, 2019, 2020. So coach the, the final season at friends 2018 2019 and we had a really good team won 20 games um and i was working again working part-time as a freelance reporter uh i was also working for for coach brown with basketball stars of new york um but i kind of knew that was just going to be my last year there and it was just time for a change yeah so you arrive in spain to do your master's program did you did you speak spanish and and kind of just was there any type of culture shock or 
or, and just what was the adjustment like to now living in Madrid compared to New York City? Yeah, uh, I was conversant in Spanish. Okay. Uh, I hesitate to say fluent. There's, you know, there's some words I don't know, tenses I, I may mess um, up on occasion. But you can yeah, survive. I, I could survive for yeah. sure. I could survive. And I mean, I'll, I'll also say they, they speak relatively good English in, in Madrid as well. So, um, yeah, a, a culture shock, maybe maybe a little bit, but but in the end, just kind of being from New York City, there are a lot of similarities as well. You know, you didn't need a car to, yeah. to get around there. There are a lot of people on the streets at all hours. Uh, some really nice parks there uh, and it's just you know it's a it's a really good madrid's a really really good city and and i, I thought in many ways it was similar to new york so there's certainly some some adjustments over there um but but on a, it, it was a great experience and I, and I thought that transition i was anticipating maybe it would be a little more difficult than it actually was I also just, you know, this is my own biased opinion, but that New Yorkers are very resilient and just, you know, the the quirks of New York City allow you and prepare you to live in other places because something that's so inconvenient here is just like a nice part of life and somewhere else you're like, this is the greatest thing ever. Absolutely. Uh, There's a lot of truth to that for sure. Like a working public transportation system, you're like, this is the greatest thing ever. Yeah, there's not a signal (laughs) malfunction every 10 minutes. So that that was nice for sure. But so – but so you're in Spain, as you said, for when you went there just as a tourist, you were reaching out to different basketball coaches, looking up the academies. Did you continue that when you are now the, a full-time resident in in Madrid for the school year? And, and and just, you know, what is just that like when you're trying to reach out to coaches and just making connections in, in a foreign country? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, before I went over, this is last summer, I actually found a club coach over there, Coach Ali Verbukas, on Twitter. Uh, and we exchanged some messages. I had a feeling I was really just going to miss coaching this year. Um, so I asked him if I could uh, if I could go to some of his practices. And he had a 15U club team there. So I did that my first couple of weeks Uh but those practices were at night and my classes were starting and those classes were at night for me. So I couldn't do that anymore. So I was really just thinking, uh, you know, how am I going to get my, my coaching fix over here now? So, uh, it is coincidentally enough, a couple weeks later, I was listening to the, uh, to the basketball immersion podcast with Chris Oliver and he had on the Spanish coach, uh, coach Hota Cuspinera who coached this team, Fuen Labrada, which is in ACB, which is the top, which is the Spanish league. It's probably the top domestic competition in Europe, and it's not far from Madrid. So I looked him up. I, I found Coach Cuspinero's website, and I just sent him an email asking if I could uh, if I could come to one of his practices. And wasn't sure if he was going to write me back, but but he did in about ten minutes. So oh, wow. I could come. He told me I could come. Uh, whenever I wanted. And I think the next day, or maybe it was two days later, I, I took the train there. It took like an hour and 20 minutes to get there. I was on three different trains, but got to uh, go to his practice. And, and that was just, that was amazing for me. They had uh, they have a few former NBA guys. And again, that, that ACB, the Spanish league is really, I think the, the best domestic league there is. So for sure. built a nice, built a nice relationship with coach and he 
told me I could come back as much as I wanted. So I was really going about maybe three or four times a week for six, seven weeks. And, and that was just, that was amazing for me. It was exactly what I was looking for. And I, and I learned a whole lot. Yeah. And you know, the, the three train hour and a half thing is just called a normal day getting to work for so many yeah, New Yorkers. Just a, just a, and, yeah. and so that's completely normal. But, but so you're watching the, this pro prize, as you're saying, the ACB is an awesome, awesome league. It's, as you said, the, the best domestic league in Europe. You're, you're watching a pro team practice. All your experience doing on-court coaching yourself at that time was assistant high school basketball, AAU basketball. Now you're watching pro teams practice. What, obviously, just besides the skill level of the players, just do they do anything different in practice just between a pro and an amateur level? Yeah, so thanks for the question. I, I had several different uh, takeaways and I actually I wrote these down while I was there um, and, and one of these is just pros forget plays too uh, there are times <laughs> where you know even the, the former NBA guys can't remember exactly where to go in a set Yeah. Um, so the notion that uh, you know these guys are pros or they know everything now it's, uh, was, I think I built that one uh, up in my head a little bit and then you know just the physicality at that level is it's incredible. It's just, it looks like American football sometimes watching basketball over there. Guys are coming off zipper screens or different floppy action. Defenders are just grabbing, there's pushing, shoving. And it really, uh, just really trained my eyes uh, to see how fast it was and to really just appreciate the physicality of it all. And again, mm. you know, Fun Labrado was one of the worst teams in the ACB. But you're going against Real Madrid, you're going against Barcelona, um, Basconia, Valencia, all, all incredible teams. And so just to see them prepare for that was, yeah, it was really appreciative for that. And and I think the last, the last takeaway I, I had just from, from being there is just coaching at these high levels. It's Coaching's a brutal industry at times. Um, you know, coaches in Europe routinely get fired. Coach Cuspinera, unfortunately, um, he got let go at the end of January, half, and it was only halfway through his first year there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Gran Canaria, another really good team this year in the Spanish League. They had just hired an assistant coach from the Utah Jazz, but they had a really good year. He just got let go a few weeks ago. So, you know, I've always thought in the U.S., it's... Uh, a little harsh when coaches get let go after only two or three years, but but in Europe it's really another level. After you know, guys will let you go. The teams will let you go after one year. So we see in the Olympics that Spain has an awesome team. The last few runs in the Olympics with the Casal brothers, Ricky Rubio, Rudy Fernandez. Uh, just what's the basketball culture like in Spain? Obviously, soccer or football over there, as, as they call it, will always be number one. But just what yep. is the basketball culture like? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a really serious basketball culture. I think one thing that caught my eye, and I didn't get to go to a whole lot of academy practices, is really more at these Fun Labrada Pro practices. But I think... You know, we're so regimented here in the U.S. in our in our drills and, and we drill and we drill. And, you know, over there, I think uh, there's a lot more freedom for younger players. It's There's a little more just trial and error yeah. and kind of, you know, let players, especially when they're younger, 13, 14 years old, make mistakes. 
and learn to really play the game that way and get better from it. Whereas, you know, I, I didn't see at any of the younger levels, I didn't see many sets. Maybe a team would have one, would have one set, but, uh, you know, these guys were really, it was all about spacing and all about just learning how to play, learning how to pivot a little bit and, uh, really getting, really getting game action and decision-making action. So, so did you end up going to any pro games and just, and just what was the crowd like? Because we see in like European soccer games, sometimes it's bananas with like flares and chants and singing the whole time and yeah, sold out absolutely. counts. Just, just like what was like the, and you know, the, obviously it's a basketball, they, they love basketball over there as, as a culture, as you're saying, but just you're, you're at this game. Just what is that like? Yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, I didn't, the games I went to over in Spain were really mild mannered. I mean, the crowd is intense and there's certainly mm-hmm. more passion than, than there is in an NBA arena, but it was, it was like a college basketball, a D one college basketball game, but much, uh, much just higher level. Yeah. Um, you know, so I go into Real Madrid. I mean, those games, those are, uh, there's a lot of intensity. I, I went to the game when they played uh, FC Barcelona in a EuroLeague game. That was that's a, obviously as big a rivalry, really, as there there is in the EuroLeague. Um, crowds really under control. Really, really good basketball game. Being at Fuenlabrada games, you know, it's not a great arena. It's uh, it gets really loud in there, but fans are loyal. Fans are knowledgeable about basketball and fans really, really support their teams. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think in other, other countries in Europe, I think Greece in particular, um, you can get, uh, those, those two teams, Panathinaikos and Olympiakos, those crowds can get a little out of control. And, and I think there have been tear gas incidents in the past, but now Spain was, Spain was just great basketball fans who were serious, who who made a lot of noise for their teams, but but nothing out of control. So you're watching all this European basketball. You know, it's the the Spanish league is on TV. When when you go home, were you keeping up with just the basketball trends and things that were going on in the in the U.S.? Like, were you watching Anthony Davis on the Lakers or kind of following the the Dayton season or your guy Chris Mack at Louisville? Like, like were you just so – like, like, like were you watching any just American basketball as well? Yeah, I, I, uh, I had an ESPN pass over there that let me see uh, – that let me watch college basketball over here. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really see – much NBA this year, but mm-hmm. we certainly watching watching Europe, watching Spain in particular, and watching a lot of college basketball here as well. So probably, uh, I, you know, I'm as you know, I'm a huge Buzz Williams fan. So yeah. I was watching a lot of Texas A&M this year, and just really was interested because that was his first year there. Uh, so just wanted to see what they looked like in, in November and be able to compare that to what they looked like in, in January or February. That was. Still, still, uh, still got to watch some some American basketball. I remember staying up until it was like two a.m. over there watching the Maui Invitational final between uh, <laughs> Kansas and uh, Kansas and Dayton. So, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I was a little antsy about like, well, will I still be able to watch college basketball? Because I, I got to get my fix of that too. Yeah. But uh, but you know, worked out perfectly for me. So. 
Luka Doncic, star of the Dallas Mavericks, played for Real Madrid in the ACB, was the MVP of the EuroLeague at 19, and he was is he's been the most successful, the quickest of like kind of the the European guys who have come over to the NBA. Dirk is obviously the best all time, but like Dirk, his first year didn't set the league on fire the way Doncic did, and kind of now we we kind of feel like maybe there's this shifting of of the guard or changing of of the tides where there's a little more respect for European basketball and European prospects uh, here in America that they have a little more respect for for the game over there. While watching all the the Spanish league and the Euro leagues, who were some of just the top guys who you saw, and maybe just some names to look for for the upcoming and. NBA drafts. Sure. So I think when you talk about the Euro League, if you're talking about best players, a lot of them have spent a little time in the NBA, but maybe got a little more money to, to go over to Europe and are now superstars over there. Um, the the best player in the Euro League is hands down Shane Larkin. Uh, from Former Nick. One, former Nick, former Net, I believe, and played at the University of Miami. Um, he's unbelievable in the Euro League. I think he had a game of, I want to say he had 49 in a game this year, which is like, uh, that's like scoring 70 in an NBA game. Yeah. Uh, Euro League numbers or uh, Euro League scoring is not NBA scoring. So for him to have 49 is, is just unbelievable. Um, Nikola Mirotic was one of the better players in Euro League this year. Um, he actually won MVP of the Spanish League. Um, he, he, you know, played with the Chicago Bulls, played with the New Orleans Pelicans and left the NBA, took, uh, took a, accepted a deal with FC Barcelona before this year. So he had a really good year for them. Um, Mike James, who played with, uh, the Phoenix Suns yep. briefly, uh, re- having a really, really nice career, had a great season with Cheska Moscow. Uh, it was one of the, one of the better teams in Euroleague this year. Let's see, uh, there's a guard from Real Madrid, and there's a lot of talk he may come over to the NBA this summer, Facundo Campasso, and he is hes a short point guard, 5'10", from Argentina, um, played really, really well in uh, it was a, the FIBA championships last summer, and there's theres a lot of talk, an NBA team is going to sign him this offseason, but... He was uh, he was one of the toughest guards in the Euro League, and, and I think he could really be a nice piece on an NBA team here. Uh, and then I would say um, Toko Shengelia, if you remember him from uh, he played with the Brooklyn Nets, I think briefly, and, and now he's uh, he was playing at Basconia, okay. Spain this past year. So, and as far as as far as prospects for. Uh, for the NBA draft, I think obviously one who gets the most attention might be Denny Avdia mm-hmm. with Maccabi Tel Aviv. Um, probably saw him play maybe five, seven times this year. I was pretty, I was pretty impressed. I think, uh, I think he's a pretty safe bet. Um, if you're a team, a lot of people don't consider this an unbelievably strong draft, but I think Avdia is a pretty safe bet. Who's going to have nice 10 year career in the NBA. If not, yeah. If not longer, I like him. I like him as well. I think uh, he doesn't have he doesn't go left very well at this point. Um, but you know he he played a lot better after uh, after the season was interrupted and mm-hmm. just won uh, just won the Israeli league this this past week. So I think you know in that seven eight range in the NBA draft he could be a nice nice addition. 
Um, then you get to uh, Killian Hayes is getting a lot of attention, really smooth lefty guard. I didn't get to see a ton of him this year because he was playing in the in the German National League and he okay. wasn't in the Euro, he wasn't in the Euro League. Gotcha. Um, but you know, you might know even more than I do about him. But everything I've seen, really smooth, shoots it well, um, nice size, and and I think could be a really nice addition for a team. Just uh, j- just for to- uh, context, qu- quickly here, Coach. Yep. Luka Doncic, 19 years old, won EuroLeague MVP. Killian Hayes, 19 years old, not on the EuroLeague roster. Just like, ki- can you kind of talk about just how hard it is for sometimes these prospects, uh, just just these young guys in Europe who are playing on these pro teams to make the top roster and, and really to play a lot at a really young age? Yeah, it's it's a major challenge. You know, it's uh, it's. I think Fran Fraschilla from ESPN likes to say that if you're comparing it to baseball, uh, Division One is Double A, and playing pro in Europe is really Triple A. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going against. I mean, you're going against grown men. It's uh, yeah. college. It's basically college basketball intensity, but with thirty year olds. Um, so it's, uh, you know, these young guys who come in and have, have some contributions, you know, it's, uh, it's difficult. It's really, really difficult for, uh, for young players over there. And they oftentimes don't have great stats and you'll see a lot of teams where, you know, eight or nine players are averaging between six and 13 points per game. Um, but, uh, you know, you're getting experience at a young age playing against, playing against real adults and and uh you know it's far better competition than uh than even division one would be here so when during this whole trip to spain or or just your whole journey when did you first meet george raveling and and kind of start working with him yeah so i uh i actually met coach raveling in 2015 at his clinic Mm -hmm. uh just spoke to him Briefly, it wasn't uh, really, there were only a couple hundred people at that clinic, but, um, you know, and uh, he's, I followed him for a while. He sends out a Saturday newsletter that I think is really strong and I've really admired for a while. And he started last year with uh, Michael Lombardi, who's former NFL front office executive. They started a newsletter together called The Daily Coach, just for for leaders and coaches and teachers um and it just comes out every morning and i i saw on twitter in the in during the winter i saw they were looking for for just an intern somebody to help them really you know get this get this off the ground so i i wrote a cover letter i i explained that i met coach raveling at, at his clinic in 2015 and, and i still kept his business card from still have it with me from uh from that day and uh so I applied and, and they took me on and, you know, it's been, uh, it's been incredible getting to get into work with those guys and, and, you know, getting to, to know coach traveling even better. So you're in Spain, February's hitting, March hitting. When was yeah. the first time you heard the word coronavirus? I think I had heard it in February. Um, it was, it was getting some attention and I think until late February, 
I don't think anyone, uh, nobody imagined that it was going to reach the levels that it that it did. Um, you know, I uh, I think initially it was the major concern was was obviously China and, and Italy as well, um, but it was you know I think it was uh, mid March. I want to say March. 11th or so yeah. when things started to really it, it looked like this was getting out of hand pretty pretty quickly so you're in spain also during this time you know you're in spain things are escalating not just in where you were staying in madrid and in the nation of spain but also here in the u.s and there's all this talk of are we closing borders are we limiting flights are people just yep. going to be stuck overseas how did you a decide i i have to get back home to new york and also be just what was that process like at the airports was it like when we see in like a a disaster movie where everyone's storming it or or was it kind of relatively calm because people were just afraid to fly because of the virus yeah it was uh, i would say the airport experience was relatively calm i'll say that it was you know you kind of hearing that the situation was really uh was really getting worse and spreading to the rest of europe uh and it was i think it was that wednesday night i I went to bed and woke up the next morning and the story had come out that rudy gobert uh had the virus tom hanks had the virus yeah there's sort of that confusing order issued of closing the borders but it wasn't totally clear whether they'd still be open to to american citizens and it it was a pretty chaotic period for me over there just kind of had to figure out (laughs) had to figure out am am i coming home is it is that is that an overreaction is the program going to continue what's going to happen and had to decide really really quickly so ultimately just kind of realized like no have to have to get out of here and and was thankful to to get back home when I did. Yeah, so you get back home, you continue your program, and you wrote a thesis, a really interesting thesis about how the EuroLeague can increase their popularity uh, within Europe. And and just can you kind of just give us just the bullet point summaries because it's really interesting, but also like thesis, like like thesis projects, really long too. So just – what are like the key bullet points? How would how should the Euroleague go about becoming more popular in Europe? Sure. So I, I think uh, one of the challenges the Euroleague faces is that it's really a lot of people just view it as a secondary league. It's not the NBA. It's not the best. Um, but I think more, if more people watched it. A lot of people would just realize, you know, this is still a really high level of basketball, uh, and it, and in many ways it can offer a lot that the NBA can't. So I think one of the the main things the league would be wise to do is maybe create some promotional campaign with players who have played in both leagues, um, you know, with highlights and crowd intensity, and just showing, you know, you can get Luka Doncic famously said that. Uh, you know, it's easier to score in the NBA than it is to Europe. That's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's great from a marketing perspective for the EuroLeague. Yeah. You get Nikola Mirotic or Shane Larkin or those guys to really communicate to a, to a larger audience uh, how strong the EuroLeague is. And two, two other quick proposals. I think, uh, you know, the 
the Euro League has such incredible academy teams. Um, Real Madrid has just an unbelievable academy program, and there's already it runs a major tournament for for its uh, for its club teams called the Next Generation Tournament by Adidas. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my proposals is why why not have the top four teams from the Next Generation Tournament in Europe come over and play in the final AAU event in the U.S. Okay. in, in July. Cool. So I mean, think you know, four years ago, in theory, you could have had. Maybe Luka Doncic playing against Zion Williamson or, uh, or yeah. John Morant or something like that. So, so I think uh, that's something for the league moving forward. And then one other thing that I, I think would be interesting to see the league do is maybe take a team of your best seventeen or eighteen year old prospects in the Euro League and and uh, assemble them to play in the in the NBA Summer League in Las Vegas. Okay. So. You know, it's not just NBA teams who play in the summer league. I think yeah. China had a team, uh, has had a team in, in it in the past, Croatia as well. So, so why not? Uh, why not maybe expose younger players? Maybe, maybe uh, bring in a greater audience. Yeah, for sure. So you're so you're home in the U.S. You're working on your project, but also you were looking for a full time coaching job, and you get hired at the Packer School this past spring. Just just what was it like uh, just doing Zoom virtual interviews with uh, with the guys at and the search committee at Packer and, and just that whole experience like? Yeah, it was uh, it was a bit of a whirlwind experience. Uh, really thankful for for the opportunity. Um, yeah, it's, it was a little chaotic. Just everything happened really, really quickly in, in a March, early April. Um you know, but uh, I'd always kind of kept a, a booklet of my basketball philosophies over the years in case in case I had my own my own program one day. So fortunately, was was able to uh, to use that, and, and and that paid off. But it was uh, yeah, it, it, everything everything really just happened so quickly for me, and still uh, still doesn't feel real in a lot of ways. Yeah. So. You know, obviously with the coronavirus, so much uncertainty, uh, no one really knows what's going to happen this fall or winter. We're hoping for the best. But one thing I'm always interested to hear about from coaches is, you know, it's very easy as a player. Hey, try to become a better shooter. Okay, you can go out and you can shoot as many jump shots as you want. And, and if you do the, the right power practice, you're going to become a better shooter. But how do coaches go about the off season of trying to get better at coaching? Because especially this summer with very, very limited AAU opportunities and summer camp opportunities, just what are some of the things that you're doing to, to try to work to, to just not only just get ready for the season, but also just to, you know, Im- try to improve as a, as a basketball coach? Yeah, I, uh, it's a great question. Uh, it's, so I try and have several conversations a week with just, with other coaches, other high school coaches, um, some coaching friends I have in Europe. Um, but it's also, for me, it's uh, a lot of watching coaching clinics. One of the, it's certainly been been challenging, can't go and see uh, see teams on the court, really. But really, uh, really fortunate that, you know, NABC, for example, uh, has put on just unbelievable coaching, coaching clinics. Uh, Summit Coaching Clinic has been, really an invaluable resource for me too so really just trying to get better in in as many areas i can and make sure i'm still 
constantly thinking the game, uh, you know, each day and each week. And, you know, I think uh, the day we, we stop trying to get better is the day we have to kind of give it up. And, right. and, you know, I really, I'm just constantly uh, searching for, for ways I can improve and what more I can learn. Well, Coach, from from what it sounds like, and just from your whole journey, the the guys at Packer and, and just really that that whole school is going to really benefit from your experience and your knowledge, and also what you're going to learn going forward. So, as as we approach the end here, appreciate all the time. I have five rapid fire questions before we end the podcast. Let's do it. All right, number one, favorite drill as a coach. My favorite drill is what I call Kentucky rebounding, and we got it from. John Calipari. It's basically just a coach at free throw line or at the top of the key, and then two players are in the paint underneath the basket, and they're just fighting for fighting for position for a rebound. And they can only, you have to catch the rebound on the fly, so it cannot bounce. Um, and obviously, bigs have the advantage in the drill, but you really find out who who's tough among your guards because who's willing to really really push and go get that ball. So I think that's probably my favorite drill. Do you have any pregame superstitions? Yeah. Uh, again, I heard Coach Buck on here a couple weeks ago, and I liked what he said where he doesn't like to come out too early. You see a kid miss a layup. <laughs> you just you start panicking yourself. So uh, I, I'm the same way. I don't like to come out too early to watch layup lines. But I say I always walk down from our bench to just touch the baseline with a minute 30 seconds left on the, on the clock before tip. Okay. And then I just walk right back. I don't know. Do you ever still play with the guys when, when you're coaching friends and the AU? Did, did you ever play with them or anything? Just just show them, hey, coach can still kind of get up and down. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, more my my uh, when I was starting out, I'll, I'll play with them here and there, especially if they need another guy. Um, I still try and go shoot around by myself or, or maybe with a few friends a couple couple times a week, um, but. You know, I'll only uh, only play with the people I can guard. So, if you could change one rule about basketball, what would you change about high school basketball? Yeah, I I uh, I think that universal shot clock is just uh, I can't really figure out why it hasn't happened yet. I know more states are going to shot clock, but the fact that it's not in all fifty states kind of. Um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me at this point. Okay. And last question here. What was the best dish or uh, plate of food you had in your year in Madrid? Oof. That's a great question. Um, I had some unbelievable calamari. I mean, there's great just seafood in Spain. Um, so I had uh, calamari, uh, really good chicken dish with uh mixed raisins and rice and uh unbelievable uh unbelievable restaurant that i I really like to go to so as soon as uh you know when i can get back over there i'd love to get back to that spot again for sure so so coach really appreciate all the time as always on the double double we give a last word to our guest you have anything you want to shout out or say to the to the great community of of the packer school here in brooklyn heights new york yeah thanks david Uh, I think the main thing for, for me, and it's not just Packer, but just, uh, you know, basketball fans all over is, uh, it's just coaching is coaching is hard. And I think too often people try to 
formulate opinions on coaches and don't have the necessarily have the full picture. So, mm-hmm. you know, you fans or outsiders might see something in a game that I don't know might not make a lot of sense in the moment, but but it's the coach who's the one who's in practice every day and knows his or her team better than than anyone. I just think if more people kept that in mind and maybe didn't rush to judgment so quickly, uh, coaches would be better for it, programs would be better for it, and ultimately, you know, the kids would be better for it as well. So I I think that's my main thing, really. I always want to be known as a coach who's for other coaches. For sure. So, Coach, really appreciate all the time. Best of luck going forward. David, thanks so much. Appreciate it anytime. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.